Let's take our Bibles and open again to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to continue in 1 Peter in the first chapter. I've entitled this morning's message, Faith in the Revealed Word. There seems to be a new trend of pastors transitioning their textual positions and leaving the King James, leaving the TR, and going to more toward a wider variety of translations and different texts. I find that a very disturbing movement because if you understand God has revealed his word, which he has promised to do, that he's inspired his word and he's promised to preserve his word, then that means that texts that have blatant differences can't all be right. And so when you look at preservation of Scripture, and this really is not part of the message, but I think with what's happening, it's important to say, when you look at the preservation of Scripture, God has promised to preserve His Word, right? And every word is important. And so when you look at the body of text available, and you see a large amount of texts throughout the ages that are in agreement, and then you have a few over here that disagree, but God has said that his word would be preserved for every generation, then wouldn't even common sense tell you that this large body that all agree is going to be accurate compared to these few over here that have errors in it? But because some of these few over here that have errors in it are older, well, obviously they must be better according to modernists. That's not so. God said he was going to preserve his word for every generation. So some of these texts literally were hidden for hundreds of years, thereby not being available to generations and then how could you all of a sudden say, well, that was the right text all along? That would make God a liar because they weren't available to every generation. You see, just studying what God promised to do is going to lead you to the logical conclusion of which text are right. And then once you got the right text, then you look at the translation and the translation styles and you're going to get the right translation. It's really that simple. I told you, I'm a simple guy. Now, honestly, it is much more complex. But in the simplistic gist of it, that really is the boil down of it. And so I do find it frustrating that pastors are arguing about which text. I got a call the other week from a guy who claimed to be doing some kind of survey of pastors about the text issue. And he said, I want to ask you some questions about the different texts. And so the first series of questions were using the these and the thous in use. And so that was pretty easy because, you know, which ones are singular, which ones are plural. And so, and then he started giving words that are, the meaning of it has changed in the English language since the writing of the text. And some of them I honestly didn't know, and I just told him flat out, I don't know. And then he starts explaining about how some words in different languages, whatever, sound like something they don't mean, blah, 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 and whatever. So I found out that I guess their survey is actually trying to go on the other side of this, uh, trying to explain away why we should do away with the King James. You know, I find it a whole lot easier for the few words that we don't understand in our modern English to get a dictionary and look them up, an old dictionary and look them up, than to try to redo the whole thing. Because every redo 
has serious problems. There's a book, and I believe it's in our library, Pastor Surrett, who is very good with both Greek and Hebrew and English, did a study, and he wanted to take an Old Testament sample and a New Testament sample, and I don't remember exactly which books. I think it was Genesis from the Old Testament, maybe John from the New Testament, but he took a couple samples from each. And then he did a comparison of the King James versus the New King James, because the New King James claims all they did was updated the language, right? Got rid of the these and the thousand, just updated it and made it better. So every time he came across a difference in the two, he looked it up in Hebrew or Greek lexicons. Now, he said even trying to be as fair as possible to the New King James, he used the most modern lexicons he could find, okay, trying to be fair. Again, using the lexicon because what matters most is what was the original Greek or Hebrew word to translate it over to English, right? So he uses a lexicon, which is basically a dictionary of a foreign language type thing. It gives you those words, the Hebrew and Greek words, and then gives you the English definition of it, and it parses out for you, all kinds of stuff. But anyhow, depending on the lexicon. He found that most of the lex- most every time, almost every single time, even using the most modern lexic- lexicons, it agreed with the King James, not the New King James. So, in other words, to try to make it more readable, which, by the way, the King James Bible is on a sixth grade reading level, so it's really not complicated to read. Okay, but. Even in in that, he was showing that their changes were not making it more clear. It was actually making it worse because it was further away from what the original word really meant. The book's in the library. I forget the name of it. If you need help finding it, I'll help you find it. Interesting read of the contrast. And then he put it in print form. And I thought, you know, that was a very fair study. He took both... Hebrew and Greek samplings. He used the most modern... I mean, he was trying to give every benefit he could to the new King James and still showed the King James is still the best translation. Now, some would say, well, that's because of his preconceived ideas and preconceived slant. Let me tell you something. I sat under his ministry for eight years, and he is probably the most balanced man I've met. Now, does that mean... Does he have preconceived ideas that the King James is best? Yeah, he'll he'll admittedly tell you that. But I believe when he tries to do a study, he tries to be as fair as possible as, as he can with that study. And I think he really was trying to give the benefit of the doubt to the new King James. And yet the proof still showed it is a less quality translation. And then there's other things in there that they blatantly changed. And he shows those too. And so he showed us it's not the quality of translation that they claim it that it is. I said all that to say, you and I have the complete revealed Word of God sitting on your lap. What a privilege we have. Trust it. Read it. Obey it. Believe it. Don't doubt it, okay? So let's look at verses 10 through 12 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what? Or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed 
that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister to things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. So he reminds them the Old Testament prophets wrote much of their prophecy. And believe it or not, sometimes the prophets writing it truly didn't even understand what they were writing. Now, if they're writing this down, and they really don't even truly fully understand what they're writing, but they claim this is the Word of God, and then in our time, when Jesus did come his first time, we have a fuller understanding of these prophecies, and I'm going to explain this in a minute. Is that in and of itself not proof that this is truly the revealed Word of God? They searched to understand things regarding the Messiah, but some of it they could not understand. Now that Christ has come, we have an understanding of how he provided salvation. We understand his sufferings and his return to set up his kingdom. And so we're going to look at it this way. We're going to first of all see the searching of the ancients. The searching of the ancients. Secondly, we'll examine the stooping of the angels. And then lastly, we're going to notice the salvation of the Almighty. I am glad you and I can trust the revealed Word of God. Let us look to Him in prayer. Father, again, thank You for Your Word, and I pray, Lord, that we truly have a greater appreciation, a greater understanding, and a greater faith in Your Word today as we study this passage. We'll thank You for it in Christ's name. Amen. Again in verse 10, he says, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you? So, inquired and searched diligently has the idea of emphatically searching You and I still need to search the Scriptures daily, do we not? You and I need to have a zeal in studying the Word of God. 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. So let's look at the content of their study. Okay, verse 10 talks about salvation through this Messiah. And then verse 11 talks about the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. So as we go through the Old Testament, we see these prophecies of the Messiah, do we not? He's going to bring salvation. We see prophecies he's going to suffer, and we see prophecies he's going to reign as king. Now, without a fuller understanding, if you were trying to put that together, imagine yourself standing in, let's say, 300 B.C., 300 years before the birth of Christ. You have the complete Old Testament, and you're trying to understand more about this Messiah who's going to provide salvation. There's very clear scriptures that he's going to suffer and die, but there's also very clear scriptures that he's going to reign forever as king. Would that make sense to you? Just be flat out honest. Would that make sense to you looking at it from their perspective? I think all of us would have to say, No, if that's all the information I had, it would not make sense, right? Because understand, as we've examined before, I'm going to look at a little bit again this morning, some of these prophecies, because they do not see the church age, look as one continuous prophecy. So let's look at a few of these this morning. First of all, salvation is going to come through Messiah. Genesis 49, verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver between his feet, until Shiloh come... And until he shall gather 
uh, till shall the gathering of the people be. Haggai 2.7, And I will shake all nations, and the desire of nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Now there's many others, even Genesis 3.15, that talk about there's going to be one who's going to bruise the head of the seed of the serpent, who's going to bruise the head of the serpent, the serpent's going to bruise his heel, and this one is going to come from a, the seed of a woman, Okay, there's many prophecies throughout the, the Old Testament showing about the salvation that's going to come through this Messiah. Okay, but then there's also many prophecies talking about his suffering. Psalms 22, verse 6, And I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of man, despised of the people. If you go through the whole 22nd Psalm, it talks about the death of Christ. Isaiah 53 as well. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we are hid at our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Daniel tells us, After three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Okay, so there's many, many passages, again, in the Old Testament, talking about a suffering Messiah, right? Now, we come to verses like Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace shall, shall there be no end. And upon the throne of David, upon uh, his kingdom, to order it and establish it with just judgment and justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord will perform this. Daniel 2, 4. And in the days of these kings shall the, the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So, again, we have many passages, again, and I'm just giving you a few samples this morning. I'm not trying to give you every one of them. But you see, then, in the Old Testament, prophecies that Messiah is going to bring salvation Messiah is going to suffer and die, and Messiah is going to reign forever. Now, it's kind of hard to suffer and die and reign forever, right? As a matter of fact, it is said of some of the Jewish scholars that they started coming up with theories. I bring this up because sometimes we come up with theories, uh, trying to explain things in the Bible, and... They found out that their theories were wrong. Maybe some of ours will find out we're wrong someday. And I'm not ashamed to admit that because where God has not given us the information, we don't know. And so we need to be careful speculating. So there were some theories. One, one of them that was proposed is that there must be two messiahs, one who comes and suffers and dies and one who reigns forever because they couldn't see this being the same individual. Well, that's wrong. It is the same Jesus Christ who came the first time, suffered and died, who is coming again and setting up his kingdom. And he is the one who provided salvation through his death, burial, resurrection. Right? We understand that now. They didn't understand that then. Why? Because they didn't have that information then. Correct? That makes sense? Okay. But it didn't stop them from diligently seeking and searching and trying to find the truth, is what Peter is saying. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glory that should follow. They're, they're sitting there trying to piece this together. When is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? Those are legitimate questions, aren't they? Now, they should have understood a 
relatively close timeline, and I believe many of them did, according to Daniel's prophecy, understood a timeline of when uh, this should have happened. But even during Christ's ministry, did not even his disciples many times, okay, Lord, now we're going to set up the kingdom? Okay, and now, Lord, is it time? Well, what about now? Because remember, again, especially during this time period when Jesus was on earth, many of the Jews wanted Messiah to come, not to save their soul, but to save them from Rome. And they wanted the king to come and to throw, overthrow the Roman government and to establish his kingdom. Sometimes we're just as short-sighted, aren't we? We look at the temporal and not the eternal. Because, so if Jesus had come and overthrown Rome, what about the eternal souls? I'm glad he came to die for you and me, aren't you? Okay, so, but even then when he rises, okay, now, Lord, we get it. Okay, so you did come, you died, you rose again. Now how about the kingdom? We're ready for it, right? And Jesus has to help them understand again. He has to ascend to the Father, and there's going to be this time, which we still are living in, until he comes again, and then he'll set up his kingdom. Now, of course, we know... But the second coming is in two parts. There's the rapture of the church when we're caught out of here, and then there'll be the revelation of Christ when he comes actually back to earth to set up his kingdom. Okay, two separate events that will happen there. But let's go to verse 12. Unto whom it was revealed, that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister to things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you, with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Okay, so now, unto whom it was revealed. Peter saying, God revealed these things to these Old Testament prophets. He inspired them to write down his very words. Which in verse 11, searching what? Or what manner of time the Spirit of God which was in them did signify when it testified before the suffering of Christ and the glories should follow. So it shows the inspiration of Scripture. Not just that this is revealed word of God, this is, but God is inspiring them. The Spirit of Christ in them. Romans 8, 9, Be ye not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So the Holy Spirit of God moved them or inspired them to write these words. Now, I've heard people say, you know, about a book that they read is inspired. I've heard people say that, you know, other documents are inspired. But we need to be careful what we say and understand the definition of inspiration. Okay, because, oh, wow, that was really inspired piece of work. Okay. I don't know exactly what everybody's definition of that is, but when we're talking in theology inspiration, and we're talking inspiration of scriptures, we're talking God, the Holy Spirit, actually giving the penman what words to put down. Do you believe that? Okay, again, if we believe that... See, going back to preservation, pause for just a second where I was. We'll come back there, okay? But this is a rabbit trail. When we talk about the preservation of Scripture, many of the translators of modern versions say, well, it's the thoughts that matter. And so they do a, um, a dynamic equivalency, and basically they'll read the passage in the original language, 
come up with what they think it should mean, and then write that out, and that's your new verse. Okay? Here's the problem. Thoughts are made up of words. And God said, I'm not, he didn't say, I'm going to preserve my thoughts. He said, I'm going to preserve my words. And I don't want some man to sit there and figure out what God intended to say. I want what God really said. And then I'll look it up and, and see what God really said. But in order to do so, I got to have the right words. Therefore, words matter. All right. Now, we're going to go over to 2 Peter, going back to where I was. I even remembered where I left off of that rabbit trail. That was good that time. 2 Peter chapter 1, and verse 20. Let's go back a few verses. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I've not been keeping up with this whole Asbury revival. I've done some reading on it, and a lot of what I've read is a lot of emotionalism. And again, I have not studied enough to really be sane, but I have met people who say, I don't care what you say, I know what I've experienced. So let's go back, because I want to see this, since we're right here, I want you to see what Peter says about his, one of the greatest experiences I think Peter ever had, besides walking on water, that had to be a great experience, but I think even greater than that was when he saw the Lord Jesus Christ transform and standing there talking to Moses and Elijah. That had to be a pretty cool experience, don't you agree? All right, well, let's go back to verse 17. Peter writes, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Now, is that crystal clear? He's referring back to the Mount of Transfiguration. Absolutely. Look at the very next words. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well to take heed as unto a light that shineth in the dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. He says, I know what I experienced on the mountain, but let me tell you something, the word of God is more sure. Now, I have had Pentecostals tell me because I have shown them about speaking in tongues, and I've taken them to 1 Corinthians 13 and 14 and, and shown them what, what God has said about the speaking in tongues. And, they, and I had, I've had some people get mad at me and say, I don't care what you show me, I know what I experienced. Well, that goes against Scripture, because Peter says, I know what I experienced, and I don't care what I experienced, I know this is more sure. So Christian, you and I need to realize something. Don't base... God's workings on emotions and feelings and experiences, it is based on the Word of God, period. Now, I'm not saying when God doesn't do a work in your heart, there's not joy and peace and happiness. There are emotions that go with it, but the emotions are not the, not the standard. It's the Word of God that's the standard, amen? All right, verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is given of any private interpretation. Somebody want to come up with a new private interpretation that nobody's ever understood for all these years, and all of a sudden they have a new corner on the Word of God? I promise you, it's wrong. Verse 21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, that word moved has the idea of being like a ship being carried along on the waves. They were moved by God on what words to write. Now, here's the unique thing about God's revelation and inspiration 
is it was not the man, okay, that was inspired. It was the words that were inspired. Now, that's important, okay? Because everything Paul wrote was not Scripture. As a matter of fact, as you read through Paul's writings, you're going to find there's other books Paul wrote that are not part of the canon of Scripture, okay? Paul wasn't inspired. The words we have recorded for us in the books that are in the Bible are inspired, okay? So, but here's the neat thing. God takes everybody from a fisherman like Peter and John and takes a wise man like Solomon, takes a very highly educated man like Paul, takes a great leader like Moses, and he uses their personality, their education, their vocabulary, their background, their everything about them, and yet God uses all that and directs the very words that he wants preserved for you and I in the Word of God. Isn't that absolutely amazing? And you can see it as you read through. Have you ever not read some of Paul's writing and thought, wow, Paul, that's pretty deep, right? And then you read John. You know, one of the first books I, I encourage young Christians to read is the book of John. You know why? Because John is very simplistic in his writing. It's very easy to understand. And John had such a great love for Christ, and he portrays Christ in a way no other gospel writer does. And it's a beautiful place to start because, honestly, it's a very simple book to read. But you know, the writings of John are every bit as inspired as the writings of Paul. Because it was not the writer, it was the words. The words that they're putting down. And so it was in the Old Testament that God is carrying them along, moving them along. The Spirit of God is, is, is inspiring them to write these words. Now, interestingly enough, then, some of the words they're writing down as they compare other scriptures, they're like, huh, wonder how all that's going to happen. You see, they didn't have to fully understand for God to use them to write it down. Right? Okay. This really shows, by the way, the power of God in giving us his word. And that's what the emphasis of this message really is today, is you can trust the Bible. It is the infallible inerrant, inspired Word of God. Now, let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and look at the end of verse 12, which things the angels desire to look into. The angels desire, have a strong craving to look into or to stoop over, hence the reason why I get the stooping of the angels. Understand something. The angels have seen what God has done for man how God has given his word to man. The angels have seen how God himself became a man, lived a perfect sinless life, died on the cross of Calvary, was buried and rose again. They have seen how God has provided salvation for man. But the angels can never understand salvation because it was not for them. Do you understand what I'm saying? But boy, they want to look into it and see... Wow, that's amazing what God has done for mankind. They're intent on looking into it. And they desire to see the outworking of salvation in the believer's life. 1 Corinthians 4.9, For I think that God has set us, the apostles, last, as if we were appointed to death, 
for he made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. Ephesians 3.10, to the intent that now under principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. 1 Timothy 3.16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God is manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. You know, the angels take interest in a spirit-filled Christian being used of God And they're amazed at how God can use Christians. You ever think of that? They look at this and say, wow, how beautiful that God loved his creation so much, mankind, that he has died for them. He's given them this free will to choose him. And when they choose to serve, when they choose to follow Christ, when they choose to be born again, receive Christ as their savior, and then they completely surrender to Christ, how Christ working in them can do such great things. Do you ever think about it, that that actually astounds the angels? That's pretty amazing to me because, you know, we always think of angels so much better and higher and more powerful than we, but yet when we are following and serving God, we astound them. That's pretty amazing to me, don't you think? But you know, it's not just the holy angels who are interested in the Christian, but it's also the demons or the fallen angels. You say, where do you get that? Glad you asked. Hold your finger. Turn back with me to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 Starting at verse 13, Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them, which had evil spirits, the name of Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, Jew, and chief priest, which did, did so. An evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? Jesus, I know. I know by experience. Okay, the word know for knowing Jesus and the word know for knowing Paul are two different words. The word for knowing Jesus is I know him by experience. Because, well, yes, they were there when they were kicked out of heaven, right? They, they know who Jesus is by experience. But Paul, it says Paul we know. Now, that's a in- different Greek word, and it's a very interesting word. It means by studying. I've studied Paul. I've watched him. I've observed him. Charlie, I'm going to pick on you. Come on up here for just a second. Since Paul might have been a short guy, we'll have, have him be Paul for just a minute. And I'm going to be the demon for just a minute, all right? That suits you. All right, thanks. <laughs> walk, walk that way. All right, this is the idea. He's studying. He's walking, trying to figure out how to trip him up. Studying every move he makes. Okay, thank you. You can be seated. That is the idea of the word, I know Paul. Why? Were the demons so interested in Paul? They wanted to stop the message because he's preaching Christ. This guy's, this guy's got too much power. He's got too much. He, he's acting too much like Jesus. We know who Jesus is, and this guy's acting way too much like him. We need to stop him. Okay? So the demon says, Jesus we know. Paul we know. Who are you clowns? That is an amazing passage, is it not? Does that not show you that not only the holy angels, but also the fallen angels take an interest in you, Christian. Don't think that there's not a spiritual warfare out there. And when you decide to follow Jesus, you have woken up the ranks of hell and they are now following you. You are now a target. You have put a target on yourself because they want you stopped. 
I was talking to a pastor about a friend of mine, a, friend, a mutual friend of ours, and he told me, he said, pray for our mutual friend. He's struggling with the assurance of his salvation. This man, when I knew him, was a great soul winner, was preaching the gospel, was doing great things for God, and now he's not. You know why? Because, and I've been there, I know exactly where he is. When you doubt your own salvation, I promise you, you're very ineffective for Christ. Let me ask you a question. If you're truly a child of God, where do those doubts come from? Does God put them there? Nope. Who's trying to toy with your mind? Who's trying to follow you as I was following Charlie, trying to stick his foot in front of you and trip you? Right? But I told this pastor about our mutual friend. I gave him my testimony, how I struggled with assurance of my salvation for years. And he thanked me and... Uh, he was going to share that with this guy. Hopefully, he can get victory over it. Now, I know he can get victory over it. You know how I know? I came to a point, and I told you before, when I said, God, I can't live like this. I can't have these doubts. So if I truly am your child, remove these doubts that I'll never doubt again. If I'm not, then make the doubt so intense that I realize I never was your child. And I told you, when Cary Grant not the actor, but the evangelist, preached that message that August day at Ambassador Baptist College from Acts chapter 1, talking about Judas and how Judas was trusted by all the disciples, how he held the bag. You know, it's interesting. I just read through, as I'm reading through the Gospels and my personal uh, devotions, I read how, Lord, how are we going to know which one it is? It's the one I hand the sop to. He dips the sop, hands it to Judas, and Judas, that that thou doest, go do quickly. And none of them suspected Judas. He just told them who, which one it was going to be. But when Judas left, they thought, oh, well, he's going to go give to the poor. He's going to go buy something. This man was highly respected among the disciples. You understand I mean, when we read the scriptures now, they always point out Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. Okay, but understand they wrote that after the fact. But Judas died and went to hell. And I remember several years before that, when we were in a church in Pennsylvania, I responded to an invitation and one of the staff members pulled me aside and, and he even said, and I don't think he meant this bad, but he goes, Jim, you're a good guy. You serve here at the church. You love God. Of course you're saved. That August morning, I went forward. I got on my face before God, and I said, I'm tired of this. I said, and I asked you to remove the doubts, and they aren't removed, so God, I need to be saved. I got up off of my knees that morning, and I never have doubted since. So I know that you can have 100% assurance of your salvation. I used to hear it preach for years and used to sit in the seat and say, so is everybody else in this room faking it like I am? Nope. They weren't. They weren't. It wasn't. They were not. They were honest. I was not. Lastly, we see the salvation of the Almighty. Let's go back to our passage. Of which salvation the prophets inquired and searched diligently. Salvation is by grace. So as they searched diligently, he prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. For by grace he is saved, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is both for the Jew and for the Gentile. I am thankful for that, and I think everybody in this room ought to be thankful for that. Well, in my family history, I think we did find a little bit of Jewish blood, but trust me, 
If there is, it's very little. And I'm mostly Gentile, okay? So <laughs> I promise you that. The Old Testament prophecies were for our benefit. You know, I love reading the book of Matthew. How many times does Matthew say, as it was written, according to the scriptures, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, as such and such a prophet said. And the whole way through the life of Christ, he's saying, oh, and he fulfilled this prophecy, and he fulfilled this prophecy, and this one, and this one too. I mean, it's just amazing, is it not? How that God used Matthew and other writers of the New Testament to show us Christ was the fulfillment of all these, and now you and I have a much clearer picture because we have the Old Testament prophecy, but we have the New Testament that shows us Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all those prophecies. Now when you and I read about prophecies yet future, you and I should have a greater faith, a greater trust that those are yet going to come. Why? Because we have seen literally thousands of prophecies fulfilled already, which, by the way, go way back here to these guys. Did they have that advantage? Did they have that advantage? No, they did not. You and I do because God is using them to write the prophecies. And then throughout all these ages, these prophecies being fulfilled, and then we get to Christ and all these, all of a sudden, boom, fulfilled right here. You and I can trust anything that's written for yet future is definitely going to come true, can't we? I'm going to run out of time. Living in this age where we have seen how Christ has come to pay for our sin debt should bring joy to our hearts. We can trust his word for we have seen prophecies fulfilled. We know Jesus is the only way of salvation. In verse 12, the gospel is to preached to all the world, unto whom it was revealed that, did not, uh, that not unto themselves, but unto us that did minister to things which are reported among you by them that preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. We have the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the whole world. But listen, you and I will only do so if we trust the revealed Word of God. So I hope this study this morning, as we have looked at the prophets and studied what they wrote, trying to understand the angels stooping down to see the salvation and the change it brings in man, you and I, Christian, enjoy the salvation of the Lord, and you and I are the mouthpiece of God to share the gospel with those around us, and we have the complete canon of Scripture, and you and I have all... all this available to, to us, and we can trust every word of it because it is the revealed, inspired, infallible, inerrant, perfect word of God. And I can say so with all authority because man cannot refute it, cannot destroy it, and God said this is his word, and I trust him. Amen.